good evening. Uh, I know that uh, there is a feast going on here, uh, the feast of the last day of uh, the semester, not the last supper, but the last uh, day of the semester. Drinking and uh, shenanigans going on. Uh, so uh, I realize that it might be hard for people to find a parking, but uh, we're going to stick to our program. Uh, one before the last event of the year. We have one more event. I'll tell you a little bit about that before I tell you a little bit about our speaker tonight. Uh, one of the things we have been doing this year is try to find uh, very talented Iranian young writers, poets, playwrights, and try to invite them to Stanford to give us a chance to hear from them and to give them a chance to see Stanford and see uh, what happens on this side of the world. Uh, we've had several of those. And the last in that series is a woman writer called Sepideye Mohammadyan. Sepideye Mohammadyan will be coming from Iran. I think she might be on the way here already. She might be here, in fact. Is she here? No? Uh, I don't want to be embarrassed. Uh, but I know she just got her visa. Uh, she's a lawyer uh, by training, sociologist uh, by also training. Uh, she's written monographs. Uh, she's in, engaged in legal battles on women's rights issues, particularly abuse of women. And she's written some very successful novels on that very subject. So she will be here on June 29th, same room, uh, 420, uh, same uh, building 420. Room 40, 6.30, June 29th, Sepideh Mohammadian. The subject of her talk is Women in Contemporary Literature of Iran Seeking Meaning and Awareness. If that's not enough to, catch, to bring you here, nothing will. Uh, um, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce uh, our speaker tonight, uh, Shahriyar Mandanipur. Uh, I've had the good fortune of uh, knowing Mr. Mandanipur for uh, a good three decades, uh, and uh, I knew him from Iran, and I uh, have followed his work here. We have had him here at Stanford a couple of times. We should have had him more. I hope we can have him more. Uh, on every level that I have seen him work, he has excelled. Uh, he was an excellent young writer when he was working in Iran. He was an excellent young editor when he edited a very successful literary journal. And he did it an uh, unusual way. He didn't stay in Tehran and do what comes natural to Iranian intellectuals, to stay in the capital and publish a literary journal. He went to Shiraz, the city of his birth, the city whose accent he still bears proudly, uh, and started a very successful literary journal there. And then he uh, was forced, essentially, to leave Iran because uh, uh, he wrote love stories that uh, the regime wanted to censor. So he came to the United States. He taught, his, taught at Harvard for a couple of years, at Brown for a couple of years. Uh, and he wrote a very successful novel here, one of the most, I think, remarkable work. I strongly urge you to go to The New Yorker and read the review that was written about it. It's one of the most glorious reviews of a translated Persian novel 
or in fact of any novel uh, that I have uh, read. So he's a man that is truly dedicated to the excellence of his art, uh, who is willing to pay the price of exile, of all kinds of hardship, to keep uh, writing love stories and laugh at those who want to censor it. So please welcome Mr. Mandenko. Nobody send no, a message. From the Ministry of Islamic Guidance. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I just, it is the last check. Nobody send me a love message, so I can turn it off. Thank you everybody for coming. I know that it's so hard to sit here and listening to an Iranian maybe sad story instead of going to outside to a sort of <coughs> academic tower outside. I really thank you. And I would like to thank Dr. Milani my teacher at Tehran University, my best teacher at Tehran University. So what can I do? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I would like to thank Dr. Milani, my best teacher at Tehran University. Since it was supposed that I come to Stanford, it was in my mind was to give you a, to give a talk about censorship and the techniques of fighting against censorship. It came to my mind that we Iranians are so expert to give a double mission or double-faced mission Two words. My talk should do the, it was supposed to be in this, the double-faced word in Persian language, or Iranian language. It came to my mind this point that when somebody asks us, where are you from? If recently Islamic Republic made a sort of crisis in the world or make the world to fun for make fun of us Iranians. We claim that we are Persian. And if Iranian soccer national soccer team defeated for instance American soccer team, we probably say Iranian, we are Iranian. It came to my mind that Iranian I 
Persian P. It is a sort of IP for we Iranians, Persian people in this world. A sort of <coughs> walking on the edge. Past tense, glories of past, ancient history, and Iranian glories of our contemporary literature. But I decided that loss, because I'm a writer, fiction writer, it's better that I read a story for you, a sort of IPS story. So the title of the story is Ghost of Objects, translated by Sara Khalili. Madam, I'm going through worse time than you. I don't want to trouble you too much. At the very beginning, he found a seashell next to the soap dish by the sink. He started a big row, demanding to know where it came from. You probably brought it back from one of your drink and drinking and debauchery trips to the coast up north, and you have forgotten, I said. He started shouting that he goes to the coast on important business assignments. I was about to say, then go ask your dear and darling temporary wives but I can't wrangle with him too much. Sometimes he has a hand for healing. I don't know what he did with the seashell. It wasn't ugly. There was a little green algae in the grows on its surface, but its inside was like a pearl. It growled. <clears throat> Later he found a, a sprouting potato in his bed. He has been sleeping apart from me for some time now. When he is done, he goes to his own bedroom. He came home in the middle of the night. I was asleep. He started yelling, you witch. Why do you do these things? I said, why would I ever do such a thing? He riled at me that it runs in my family. Didn't your aunt go mad? He said. I didn't dare answer, even if that poor soul lost her mind, it was because she had a husband like you. But the gentleman wasn't going to let it go. Holding the potato, he blustered, if you ever do such things again, I will make you suffer horror that you won't forget even in your grave. Finally, I put the Quran in front of him. 
struck my hand on it and swore on God's word that it wasn't my doing. I don't think he believed me, but he calmed down until the time when he found a dead scorpion in his boots. He attacked me, he beat me, he beat me until his hands hurt. They really know how to hit without leaving a mark on you. He assigned a guard to keep watch on the house to see who comes and goes. I thought I should do something. I went to Haji Tawakuli and sought his help. He has visions. He knows about the invisible world. Your house is haunted by jeans, he said. He gave me a bottle of gin and devil's <coughs> repellent, repellent water and seven or eight pieces of paper with prayers written on them. I put them here and there around the house, and I put one inside the cotton stuffing of his mattress. They didn't work. May devil be deaf. I have started wondering if Haji's prayers are always the same. A few days later, in the morning, when he was leaving for work, there was a large black feather from a crow, or I don't know, from a raven in his pocket. It looked like its tip had been chewed on. My troubles started all over again. He slapped me harder than he had ever slapped me before. After he left, I packed a small suitcase and for the first time I went to my to mother's house <coughs> sulking. I was free of him for a week and then he came to take me back home. He seemed to have lost weight. As always, he was loud to speak from the heart. Mumbling, he finally said that while I was away, again a few things had appeared around the house. He admitted that he had been wrong believing it was all my doing. No, he didn't say what they were. But the way he asked me to go back home made me feel sorry for him. He had never behaved in a way that would make me pity him. A day earlier, I had consulted with my cousin who is university educated. He said he has to go to the psychoanalyst. I had no idea what a psychoanalyst does. I blurted. I blurted it out right there at the front door. Again, he became angry and shouted, are you suggesting I have gone mad? And how dare you call that lecherous cousin of yours? He knows my cousin had asked for my hand in marriage. What could I do? I went back home. 
It was two or three days after my return when on the living room table, next to the crystal fruit bowl, a pine cone, cone, a pine cone with a piece of turkey's rope had, according to him, made a nonsense of themselves. One of these pretty pine cones whose scale open up and they fall to the ground and there are these tasty seeds between their scales if the crow, crows and the sparrows leave any behind. Ah, oh, they are so delicious. I like them so much. He hurled it at the window. He hurled it at the window. It was close. The glass cracked. I didn't see this to him, but I thought one of these days he's going to bring the roof down over our heads. <coughs> he squatted on the floor and held, held his head in his hands. He kept growling at I don't know who, saying, this time to I will make sure you yourself confess that you are a scoundrel. A scoundrel. Well, sir, I said, have a chat with your fellows at the military base. Perhaps the same thing have been happening to them too. He snapped back, that's all that's left for me to do and they will make up stories about me being shell-shocked. He was bragging. As far as, as far as I know, this guardian of, the guardian of Islam was never at the front line of war. For a while, there were no more incidents at home. I said to myself, thank God, it's over. The gentleman's male virility returned, and he stopped kicking and punching in his sleep and shouting, I will make you talk. Naive me, when it first started, I would wake him up and ask, are you talking to me? No, still nothing. The last doctor we went to conducted a lot of tests and in the end said, there is nothing wrong with either one of you. You should be able to have the children, to have children. Be patient. I for one have been patient for so many years that my gut ached, aches out of the street when I see a young child walking hand in hand with his, with his mother or running after her with sweet tiny steps, my eyes fill with tears. I said to him, Prophet Shah Abdul Azim, may God preserve him, didn't bless us with anything. Let's go to Qom to pray and make vows to God after all, Prophet Masume was a woman. She will understood, she will understand our pain. There is a hadith 
that says, of the eight doors of heaven, three lead to Qum. I will even make coal from my eye, for, for my eyes with the dirt in its desert. It is just its salty water that makes me ill. When we went, he tossed five 1,002 months beers in the shrine. I thought, look at him. When it comes to Prophet Masume, he's suddenly such a spender. He only threw in 502 months at Shah Abdulaziz's shrine. He makes me account for every single real of the misery, miser, measly money he gives me for thousand, for household expenses. But little by little, I have been saving some of some on the side. I have vowed that if I bear a child, even if it's not a boy, once a month, I will cook a pot of food and take it to the orphanage for the children to have a proper meal. But it didn't happen, and things didn't stay the same. One night, when we were eating a pendant from the chandelier above the dining room table, yes, for almost a year now, the gentleman insists that we eat at the massive table. It's because of complexes from his childhood that he puts on these airs. But it's certainly not as pleasant as spreading the dinner cloth on the floor, sitting cross-legged and preparing small bits with your fingers. Anyway, we were eating dinner when one of the chandelier's crystal pendants fell down in the middle of the table. It shattered. I screamed and ran off. He just sat there and stared at the crystal shards. I had never seen such a look in his eyes. There was something strange that frightened me. He didn't say a word. I swear to God, if I had any rights, rights at all, I would have divorced him. Madam, I just screamed. I screamed as much as I could. I clawed at my hair and screamed. He didn't even open his mouth to say, shut up, wench. And then I sat and wept. What else can we do other than wail and whimper? In the middle of the night, I woke up with a start and I went and saw him still sitting at the dining room table. He had gathered the crystal shards in front of him. The shimmer reflected on his face and beard. His eyes, two cups of blood. Not that he had cried. He wasn't supposed to be holding anything, he said. It fell from his hand. Who? What? 
I asked. He didn't answer me. From that night, on his talking in his sleep and barking military orders increased. I was around that time when I decided to plant flowers. It was around that time when I decided to plant flowers in the garden. Perhaps it would help change his frightening mood. I planted violets. Some other flowers that I had never seen before started to grow in between them. He asked me what they were called. I told him I didn't know. I said, the picture of the flowers on the package of seeds was pretty, so I bought it. And the shopkeeper told me their name, but I forget it. He realized I was lying. One by one, he forced the tips of his coarse cartridge off their cases. All the while grumbling. All the while grumbling. What you deserve is for me to shoot, to, the, to shoot the bullets at you one by one, from your heels all the way up to your sinful, depraved brain. He poured the gunpowder around those flowers. In two days, they all dried up. Then he said, pull them out. I swear, they were such pretty flowers. They were a sweet and dainty shade of pink that I had never seen before and had, have never seen since. You know, what old question you ask? They haven't stopped. One that really tore at my heart was a baby, a swaddle. We were coming back from a party. It was clean, but it wasn't new. It was right there inside the front door. He started cursing at someone I didn't know. He said, you want to rattle me, you feel? This time, instead of bottom, I will shaft you with a pole so big that a hundred carpenters wouldn't, won't be able to take it out. I told myself, no matter what happens, I have to get to the bottom of all this. Time and time again, I tried to trick him into talking, but he <coughs> divulged nothing. His cold is always with him. His cold is always with him. In the afternoon or more often at night, when he comes back from work or from the home of one of his temporary wives, he immediately puts in on top of the television within his reach. Even now that nothing is going on, he's still afraid of being assassinated. He puts it under his pillow when he sleeps. One afternoon around one o'clock, he had hardly been home from an hour when he frantically asked, where is my cold? How would I know? I was in for it. Generally, generally wherever he comes home, I 
to catch his nervousness. When he realized I couldn't find his gun, he started looking for it as well, suggesting, as usual, that I was incompetent and inept. He turned the house upside down and made a mess. Madam, it was nowhere to, found, to be found. Perhaps you didn't bring it home with you, I said. He searched his pocket more than 10 times. He was frustrated. He searched my coverall and chador. When he realized we weren't going to find it, I went to prepare his dinner. At night, too, he wants rice and stew or rice mixed with herbs and vegetables. The day he came to ask for my hand in marriage, he was a handsome, slender young man. My God, not forgive my father for having forced me to accept his proposal. He said, the country now belongs to the guardians of Islamic revolution. It will, be, it will belong to you, I belong to you too. You should see my husband now, he has a punch. Anyway, when I reached into this sack of rice, God save us, his coat was there wrapped in a piece of knitting. It was obvious it had not been completed. The yarn was blue. I took it and gave it to him. He looked it over and said it wasn't his gold. Then I guess it must be mine, I said. He shouted at me and told me to get lost. If you are a real man, I said, Tell these things that appear in the house to get lost. I have a store in the kitchen for when I need to reach to top cabinets. He woke me up early one morning, and as if he knew what my answer was going to be, he asked, did you put this in the living room? With no hesitation, I snapped back. Have I gone batty and berserk to do such a thing? These days I talk back a little. Yes, and I just remember one day he had barely been gone from two hours when he came back from the base completely crazed. He used to occasionally come home unexpectedly. He would come up with some excuses to check up on me and make sure I wasn't up to any bad deed. But that day he was totally right. He had completely lost it. Apparently something had happened, something had suddenly appeared in his office. He didn't say what. All he said was, the motherfucker has found his way into my office too. He went to the front yard, pacing and grinding his thief. I took him some tea. He struck his hand under the tray. He broke my heart, my narrow, wasted, gold-rimmed tea glasses. My heart ached. I swear it really ached. The tea glass was part of my trousseau. He broke my heart. This is how it was, until one night, 
when he walked out of his bedroom, rasping alarm, I ran out of my room. He didn't let me go in to see what had appeared there. Just like someone burning with fever, he was <coughs> sweating, trembling. He asked me to sit next to him so that he could rest his head on my shoulder. On my shoulder. What? He had never done any. He had never done any such thing. When he had calmed down a little, he started to talk. In short, this was all during the year when the anti-revolution prisoners were being executed in hordes, he said. There were so many of them that for them to die on the scaffold more quickly, he or the soldiers would leap up and wrap their no arms around the prisoners, the communists or whatever they were, hanging from the noose so that they would quickly suffocate, it, suffocate and make room for the others. He said the prisoners were not supposed to have anything with them, but one of them dropped something he had in his hand. The instant the platform gave away under his feet, he said it was something that didn't belong there that it made a clanging sound. But he didn't, and still hasn't said what it was. I don't think he ever will. What do you think it was? Thank you so much. Should I stay here? Question? Yeah, questions. The hard part for a writer. But I welcome questions. Okay, I have question. Sure. Uh, I have really hard time to understand exactly what you are trying to say. Ah, and, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, also your uh, audience. Who are you trying to connect? Hmm. And what are you? Maybe it's, uh, it's my problem, but I, I could not understand it. I, I could not make that kind of connection with what you were saying. Yeah, it could be double problem, as I was talking about double uh, mission on the words. Uh, it is because maybe the tone in my English reading, the tone of a story, is so important in the text, and there were times maybe I, I lost it. But on the other hand, I appreciate your patience. And thank you for mentioning it. Yes? Is this story published in a book or online? No, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't publish yet in English. Uh, it is recently translated. Uh, Persian 
or Iranian version of it is published outside of Iran, not Iran. And what is the name of it? The Ghost of Objects, or Ghost of Objects. In Persian? Arvah Ashya. Actually, I was amazed how you find a way to connect to the story of, if I'm mistaken, because you know this is how I, I've never read that before. So I thought you're talking from the point of view of the wife of someone who is past God, or mm -hmm. revolution with God, or probably uh, even worse than that. Interrogator. telling that story from the vintage of the wife of the torture. Mm. It is a complete echo, wonderful echo, a sort of a new look, a new uh, sort of Kurosawa uh, kind of a look. Mm. He looks at it from the inside. You're looking at it from the outside of the outside. A woman who lives with the torture and suffers the torture of him who is torturing uh, people at the Shah Hussein al Pusha. Mm -hmm. It's just a remarkable story. I congratulate you on the wonderful, wonderful story. Thank you. I like, I like that you also um, kind of demonstrated the, the torture of the torturer himself. Like he's not a happy person, he's mm -hmm. also struggling and is, you know. Um, going um, crazy, going mad. Mm -hmm. Yes. What, what was your inspiration to write such a story? As a writer, first of all, making the voice of such a character, you know, I don't use or I'm not accustomed to look at these things, black and white. 
And I would like to make the voice of this woman or this wife, the wife of an interrogator, in a psychological way or in a sual way. The story is just a monologue. The form of a story doesn't allow me to explain to the reader who is she and what is the relation between her and her husband or what is the, her husband's job. It must be understood, understand among the lines. For me, Although, of course, I was hurt when we read, I, I read about execution, the waves of execution in Iran's prisons. Two major waves they were. And when I read that they jump up and uh, wrap their arms on the body of the person to help them to die sooner, it was, it, it really shocked me. And I suffered so much from this picture, how a man could do something like that. Which kind of creature, which kind of person he could be. This suffering, this hurting was in my heart for, heart for years and years. But at the end of the day, I found out the voice of the wife. Yeah, it, is, it was a great uh, point. A torturer, a torturer is torturing in his house as well by some simple things. In a writer, if, uh, in a writing, you could make these things something magical or something to so much strange. But no, something, a pancon, <laughs> a seashell, something small and something um, ordinary in our life. But they could be like the lashes that they used to use in prisons. This is what I try to write in this story. And particularly the voice of the woman in, in a sort of monologue. The scene of the stories. The woman or the wife is sitting, and he, he, she has an audience, audience in front of her. Whatever the audience, her audience said, it was deleted from the story. There are times that he uh, called her madam <coughs> and answering some questions of her. But the form of the story is a monologue. It comes in a monologue. So the form doesn't let me, I shouldn't impose any more information in the story. It, mu it must come from what the woman or the wife trying to say and what not trying to say. And it was interesting for me to make such a narration. Yes. I would like to ask a question about uh, Iranian literature more generally. Okay. And 
Depends of the from where the rider is coming. Is coming. The riders that are riding in Iran, so because of censorship, uh, they can't write wrongly or clearly about Islam. Yeah. Yeah. As I answered, you are talking about a sort of. I Islam, Islamic ideology or Islam as an ideology. I think Iranian writers are writing about it in storytelling or in the brighterly way. There shouldn't be some sort of slogans or some analyzes about Islam. Indirectly, for instance, in this story, directly, the man is an Islamic girl. Okay, but that's political Islam. You see my point? Yeah. It's a one-off. It's not a direct pointed confrontation with the basic pathology. It's Islamic politics, Islamic culture, Islamic treatment of women, these issues that have to do with Islam, but not Islam. Yeah, yeah. It depends on the writers, and I think we have, we have to read at last a complete works of a writer, if he achieved something like it or not. In general, I think, year by year, Iranian writers they are getting closer and closer to the heart of the darkness. And it's a good news. Because they are living in this situation. Who's it, is it secret? I mean, you can't say who's doing this. Some Iranian writers. That's it. You know. Well, there's a lot written. 
quite <coughs> very directly critical of Islam, both in cyber. It's just not available to you. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that part of it is that uh, it's not always directly in literature. But I'm amazed at the amount of uh, daring, right? I'm assuming it's dangerous to do that. Well, in Iran, it's your life. Iran is strictly against the law to write anything. It's one of the rules of censorship. <laughs> is there some cultural taboo? I think there is a cultural issue as well. Yeah. There's centuries of women writing poetry or fiction. Iranians are so used to reading between the lines that it's not required for someone to explicitly state what is going on. We can read between the lines and interpret it for ourselves. So if it's written for an Iranian audience, you don't have to explicitly point fingers. Most of us interpret it as what we want it to, to be interpreted as. I think directly and indirectly it happens in Iranian literature. We shouldn't force Iranian writers to just make a war against Islam. It is against every darkness in Iran or in such a country like Iran. But from the era of Bufakur or Blind Wall, you could see Blind Wall. You could see that uh, it is uh, the blade of writing, indirectly, in an artistic way. It is against Islam. It is against the superstitions. It is against the uh, uneducated people. Uh, tyranny of the mind. Yeah, I think uh, if you read Hedayat. He's a sort of the father of uh, modern Iranian literature, or modern Persian literature. He started it, and in many stories you can see it. There are times that censor didn't let the writers going to publish it, or maybe dare not to write about it directly. But there are times we, we, should, uh, we could see between the lines. As music, there are times that the silence, some silence in literature, or lack of something, it doesn't mean that the writer didn't, saw, didn't see that point. Sometimes the lack of something in an in a artistic uh, story or a novel makes, makes the reader to think about that hollow, to think about what is not there. This is, the, uh, I think, the artistic way that some Iranian writers are doing it, more or less. Yes. 
important to know which kind of Islam we are discussing. Different expression of Islam we know in the world we have. For example, Hafiz and Rumi is Muslim, and al and Daesh is Muslim also. There is important to know which kind of Islam we discuss about that one. Mm. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, but let's back to literature <laughs> and talk about literature, even literature against religion or against fundamentalism or against dictatorship, censorship. And let's get back to the aesthetics of literature, Iranian literature. Uh, as a writer, I can say, I can talk like an academic person, academic teacher about uh, Islam or some political matters. I would like to talk about literature and Iranian literature, Persian literature, everything as it is, whatever that we call it. And I think it is an injured literature. It is injured particularly in past 30, 30 years, censorship, assassination, terror. But it survived, and it could make beauties. When something in this world, ugliness, darkness, is spreading all over the world, somehow, uh, as, I, as we see, The point is, the important point is that uh, I as a writer, you as a writer, any artist could make something beautiful. There is no matter if it, it would be directly against that darkness or it would be about the beauties of a tree. Make a beauty of a tree in the beautiful story, right? a beautiful story, writing a beautiful story, even about love, even about a tree, even about a child. Not a political one, but with the aesthetic of literature, it is hardly against darkness and censorship and dictatorship. Because of it, even though there, a novel is published in Iran in 1,000 copies, not more, unfortunately. And we will see that the leader of Iran, a, a major bureau, Islamic guidance, uh, culture and uh, Islamic guidance uh, bureaus, censor machine, Oh, many, many people, they are there to censor 1,000, just a novel in 1,000 copies. Why are they afraid of it? And the novels are about, about life. They are not directly against Islam or against dictatorship. Why the dictator and its ministries are against this kind of novel as well? Why they scare of it? Because these kind of novels, talking about life, talking about beauties, 
that there are beauties in this world. There are alive people in this world. There are some characters in novels and outside of the novels that they are not like the, that characters that dictator wants that everybody would be or should be. Because of it, dictatorship, dictatorship is against novels, it's against real arts. So, right in my mind, writing a good story, no matter what would be the subject, writing a good story in the rules, in aesthetics of literature, a successful good story, it is like it would be like a bullet, firing a bullet to the heart of darkness. Yes? You know, it's interesting you said that, because I was just thinking about, you know, I was thinking why we need to, to uh, look at this whole thing as, you know, Islamic versus, uh, you know, anything else, you know. And this young lady here mentioned something about the culture. So, I think, Resistance manifests itself in different different ways. Yeah. And I think one of the best ways that the resistance manifests itself is literature. You know, because you can, you know, particularly in, a, in an environment where there's censorship, uh, it's for an intellectual, for somebody who wants to resist, it's great to, you know, bring, bring the subject, uh, you know, as a, uh, uh, as a beautiful story that you said, that I can read it and I can read between the lines uh, what you know, what you think, and what you want to what you want to tell me that you cannot tell me directly. Mm -hmm. We have it's interesting. We have a whole ministry of culture and guidance. They call it, you know, we call it culture and guidance, mm -hmm. and it's put there only for censorship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you're saying you know why the dictator wants you know, a, 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 a ministry, the whole ministry there, that's because they're afraid of uh, resistance. Yeah, that's it. And it brings, brings me, it's awkward in my mind, one of my experiences in the war time. Uh, I was serving my army services uh, in Iraq, Iran-Iraq's war, Iran-Iraq war. We were in a, in, a, in a defending front line. A long, hot summer days. And at that time, I started to write stories. When you are at the heart of an event or incident, you can write about it, particularly in writer in a, uh, in a literary way. So at that time, I didn't write about a story about war. Every day I was living in war. So and that in my, our shelter that when we sit down, uh, our hair touched touch the roof of the ceiling, um, ceiling of the shelter with a lantern. I was writing a love story. It was occurred in the north, beautiful north part of Iran. The love story. There were times that we were close to Iranian, Iraqis front line as well. And at that time, all the Western countries 
there were supporting Saddam's army. And they, so they have everything that they wanted. Too much mortals, cannons, everything. There were times that uh, when I was riding, I could hear the sounds of firing, firing a mortal shell from Iraqis line to us. It takes about three seconds, three, four seconds, that the mortal came over our line. If it, it, it fell down on the roof of our shelter, all of us were killed with chopped, chopped meat or flesh. And if because of the wind or something, accidentally something, if it goes over somewhere, we had another chance to leave. And that there was three seconds, four seconds that I had when I was riding. I hear the firing voice. And I had just a time, three seconds, to choose another word and write it at that time. It was all my life, all my chance to write. I couldn't do anything. When in mortal shell, you, you couldn't see and firing mortals and cannons. You couldn't see even the, the enemy. They are over uh, on the behind of the mountain or uh, hills. Three seconds, four seconds I had that, uh, to write, to choose the best word, the best adjective or adverb for that, this scene of my story, love story. At that moment, I feel with my flesh, my blood, the meaning of literature and the words. No matter if I am writing a love story, a, a, a story about war, about prisoners, political prisoners, no matter. I have to choose the best word and gather my life, all my opportunities, to choose the best word. And if I do it well, I am a fighter for freedom, freedom as well. I would be. I hope so that it could be. But the, my front line is literature. And I think it works very well. In 30 years, the Iranians, they, they feel it very well. They assassinated writers, our best journalists, our best translators, in a serial killing, killing uh, plot. I was one of them in a plot of uh, killing about 21 Iranian, uh, Iranian poets and writers. We were heading to Armenistan. We had an invitation from Association, Association of uh, Arman, Armenian uh, Writers. Naively, we sit in a bus, and we were heading to the uh, north part of Iran. And it was a plot. Our driver, the, the driver of the bus, at the early morning, he drove the bus <laughs> to the edge of the cliff and jumped out. And the bus goes there because he also he was afraid of his life somehow. He wasn't a good assassinator. <laughs> and <laughs> fortunately, he didn't <laughs> accelerate the bus enough. And he was so uh, eager to jump out. He has a little big in, in a dashboard of his, the bus. He just, I was awake and I saw him. 
He grabbed it and jumped out. The bus go, went to the, the edge of the cliff and stayed, stayed there. Then he came inside and started shouting at us. You made noises, you make me confused, something like this, and claimed that we uh, forced him to make a mistake, something like it. So he pulled back the bus again. Some of us thought maybe he was asleep. It is in, in Iran driving, uh, driving style or driving culture. It is, it is normal that the bus driver, when he found out that there would be an accident, they jump out. It's, <laughs> we, we are familiar with it. So I thought, well, many of us thought that it, he's, he's, he was a slave, a slave, and he found, suddenly found out that we are going to, to a deep valley. So he jumped out. The second time he pulled out back the bus, and then drive it, and then turn the wheel to the cliff, and again grab his bag and jump out. And again, the bus goes down, and fortunately, there was a, a huge stone at the edge of the valley or cliff. And it's, uh, the bus stopped there. And we came up with, with, at the door from the door of uh, driver doors. And it was funny for us. <laughs> it was like a joke. I felt like we were just like lambs, 21 of us. Riders that we claim that we are smart, intellectual, like lambs, we gather together in a bus. When they arrested, they arrested us after that morning, and they, there was a person that he was after in Khatami's era, they forced to arrest that group, that band, Said Imami's band. And he was the, the assistance of Said Imami. He came to, uh, to that uh, place in north part of Iran when we were arrested by police. And he told us, you were, are you crazy? You were crazy. You are doing, doing political matters in this country. And all of you, 21 of you, sitting in a bus, you didn't think that it is a good, it is a good chance for everybody, not us, even for instance, the enemies of us, to kill you and then say Islamic Republic done it. He was right. Anyway, we were, we were alive, but... So because of these things, and after years and years, sorry that I am talking so much, uh, years ago, I was in University Tehran University. I had, I had many good friends, political friends, uh, communists, mujahid, uh, the other kind, liberals. And after years looking for a, a sort of ideology, a sort of way that I could realize the world, I could identify the world, I could understand the world. At last, I find my shelter, that shelter that I mentioned in the world, literature. And I got, got it that literature is a good way for living. And I always said, when you are writing a story, at that moment that you put the last period 
after the last sentence of your story, when you feel that you write a good story, no matter if it, the critics get it well or not well, no matter, if you feel that you did a good job, you will feel it somehow. That moment, putting that period at the end of the last sentence, the pleasure of that moment, no pleasure in this world would compare with that pleasure. And because of it, I'm trying to write, to write, to write as much as I could. <clears throat> I wanted to ask you, when you read your work that has been translated, like this piece has been into English, how does it affect you from point of view of the aesthetics of the literature or from point of view of the effect it has on you, the emotion that it conjures up? Which, which version do you like better? Mm -hmm. uh, because my language is Persian, and all my identity is my, in my prose, not only in my language, in the prose that I try to write my stories, the tone that I try to make, for instance, in this story. So I would like, I, 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 love, I like the Persian version. You know, in translation, it is said that translation is, uh, I'm sorry that I'm telling this bad example. I'm sorry, the, I'm a feminist as well. But it is said that translation is, is a, like a woman. If it would be beautiful, it, would, it couldn't be faithful. It would be faithful, it couldn't be beautiful. I apologize, but it is a good example. Or as a man, translator is a, as, as a man. It would be handsome, it couldn't be faithful. <laughs> anyway, uh, but if the translator could, uh, could feel the story, it depends on the translator, and recreate the story in other, the second language, it would be a good job. There were times that I, uh, I, my stories failed in translation. But, for instance, uh, I really appreciate uh, Sara Khalili that she translated my novel, Censoring an Iranian Love Story, that based on her translation in English, that novel uh, translated to uh, other 10, uh, 10 or 11 other languages. When I see it in English, okay, I can read it, and there are times that some words I couldn't understand. It is a dictionary. But there are times that there is this mysterious feeling you can get. I feel it when I saw the South Korean translation of my novel. They send it to me, and I look at it, and say, which way I have to read it. Okay, in German, I don't know German. But I could, for instance, I can read the name of my characters in the novel, Sara and Dara. So it is my novel. But as a joke, I said, okay, it is South Korean narration. How could I, how could I, be, how could I be sure that the translator didn't put his novel instead of my novel? <laughs> how could I be sure? There are some jokes about it. It's a sort of feeling that your word, that words from and their mortal sure firing goes somewhere. It has a good feeling. And somehow, 
I don't know if the others has such a feeling. Somehow I, I feel that I expose too much. There are times that I... I don't know, I can't talk about it, but there are times that when I see my book at the, uh, at the bookstores, uh, <coughs> I feel a little bit sad about it. Happy and a little bit sad. It seems that our time is over, because we learn it instead. Thank you so much. Thank you.